This is an ABC podcast. In a garage in Blacktown in Sydney's western suburbs, Charles Lomu is a youth worker who teaches young guys to cut hair. This wasn't the original plan for Charles's life, but he's pretty happy with the way things have turned out. In his early years, Charles lived with his grandparents in Tonga, reading the Bible with his grandmother, helping out his grandfather. He moved back to Australia and became a talented rugby player, but then he went off the rails for a bit. After a stint in prison, Charles tried his hand at various jobs. He'd been cutting hair all his life, but now he discovered that barbering gave him peace and friendship and independence. And more than that, it gave him an opportunity to lift up other young guys who were just like him once. Charles took in five apprentices and taught them not only how to cut hair, but also how to open up and talk and to make their way in the world. Hi, Charles. Welcome. How you doing, Richard? I'm well, sir. Thank you. You still do the barbering work, of course, in your, in your barbershop set up in your, your garage. What kind of a setup have you got there? I've got a simple setup with just two stations, and uh, I've got one station that I take, uh, take after, look after myself, and then next to me I have another station that um, I'm training my daughter in, and my wife also shares that station as well, so she does braiding as well, and and together we deliver a service that's more focused on the type of hair culture that we're into, and that's urban-style hair culture. And it's quite simple, and I just love the fact that it's uh, it's in the home environment. It just helps my my children see that uh, there are other ways that they can make a living and still have time for family. You're known as Six Fades. What does that mean? Six Fades, yeah. So when I first started barbering, uh, before I actually I took barbering on as a career, I actually did some music, recorded an album and I was signed to a record label and I did some music and my title, uh, my artist name was Six Pound, and which comes from... Uh, a story that's tied to my village back in Tonga. What's the story? Can you tell it? Yeah, the story, it's um, my grandfather's village back in Tonga. It's called um, Leimatua in the island of uh, Vava'u. And in that island, the story goes that they uh, had this event that they were all preparing for, for, for a special noble that was coming by. And the women of the village were preparing all the, the catering and the food and and um, part of it was they made this order for these six-pound tins of corned beef that were meant to be delivered to the docks the day before the event so that they could have it featured at the event. And what happened apparently was that the order came the day after the event. (laughs) And so the women of the village went down to the wharf and to express their disappointment, uh, as the orders of uh, six-pound tins of corned beef came off the, the boat and landed on the wharf, they grabbed the tins and started just smashing the tins around the wharf. Right. And so the onlookers saw that the women of my grandfather's village were doing this and they became uh, labelled the, the six-pounders. <laughs> and so <laughs> that was uh, all, my, all my life growing up. Whenever we have a wedding or we have a special occasion in, in our uh, village, the tins of corned beef always come out. And they do, <laughs> and they perform this uh, smashing on the ground. The ritual a, smashing of yeah, the corned beef. 
So this is an act of anarchy, and it's kind of a built yeah. in as a music, musician at the time. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I took I took on that title, six pound to 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 pay homage to my grandfather, and then when I went into barbering, I, I went with the name Six Fades, but now I've changed it to Lumble Fades. Right. It's a way of cutting the hair on on the guys you can't. Yeah, it's a way of cutting the hair so that it graduates from a short length to a to a longer length, but. We do it in, a, in an urban cultural way, so it's uh, it goes from a, like a skin fade from a razor length to to like a, a longer length. But yeah, it's pretty fancy. Before in the back in the day, you just ask for a blend. Right now, there's like a taper fade, a skin fade, a low fade, a high fade, a burst fade. Yeah, there's a there's all different types of fades now. In, right, in is that. it a real fine art? Is it to get get it right? Yeah, sure it, is. Because I'm guessing if it's not even, it looks terrible. So you've got to get it right, exactly right, then, don't you? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so you've got to. There's a lot more focus on understanding how your clipper works. So you've got to understand the features on every single clipper and what each feature and each setting can do. And, and then that allows you to be able to control the actual fade in the haircut. So it's like a paintbrush, except in reverse. In other words, you're taking stuff off rather than putting stuff on the, the canvas of the head. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I've noticed about when the difference between the way men and women get their hair cut is, you know, women's hairdressing salons are pretty lively places. A lot of chat going on. Women are pretty happy to be there. They're having a good time. It's different with the barber thing. Guys, when they come in... And I think I'm like this too. Pretty nervous, you know, and a bit shy. I think what guys are trying to say is to the barber is, "Can you make me look cool, mate?" But but the, <laughs> but that sounds bad, so they won't say it. What do you think's going on there? The nervousness of guys when they come in to get their hair cut. Yeah, I think I think with men, uh, what I found is that sometimes men uh, don't want to admit that they care a lot about the way they look. <laughs> so, but they do. <laughs> but they do, you yeah. know, and, and I can see which ones more than the others just by the way they, um, every little step, step of the haircut, they're, they're like checking over my work. So I think uh, for a lot of men, uh, it might be a bit of a challenge, uh, but I am finding that over time, men in general are becoming a lot more um, high maintenance and so they are, they are becoming a bit more uh, aware of their, their grooming. You and I are having a bit of a chat. I'm asking you questions. You're answering my questions. Is this what you're doing when you cut hair? Yeah. yeah basically, I, I think it's the, um, the best way to, to spark conversation is asking questions. And the mindset I always keep in mind and I, and I share with a lot of the young ones that I teach barbering too is that always remember that the customer knows is the expert on his own story and if there's anything that he knows better than anyone it's their own story so just ask questions <laughs> now, I talk that to guests still all the time before they come on the show I use those exact same words that's fascinating <laughs> so you try to keep your questions pretty open then rather than very pointed yeah always open always mm. open and there's your general questions like uh, how's your day or you, you got much planned on this weekend uh, they're the general ones and they're just depending on their response you can sort of guide the conversation from there do they get stuff off their chest, these young guys, when you're cutting their hair? Yeah, I have, um, I've had a lot of those experiences where we've had some really in-depth conversations and, you know, conversations that I guess uh, uh, for some reason uh, when they're in the barber chair, there's just this uh, level of trust that a barber, I've, I've, I take it as a privilege that we have that customers or our clients feel like they can uh, speak to us. And I think it has to, a lot to do with the fact that it's one-on-one. And one-on-one, I find, maybe isn't something that uh, a lot of males uh, are comfortable with putting themselves in that situation to have a one-on-one deep and meaningful with another male. 
But when you're going for a haircut, I feel like the haircut disguises the fact that there's a one-on-one deep and meaningful conversation going on. So um, one, uh, one of my cousins who's been a long-time barber, he said, one way you can always view barbering is it's two friends catching up and the benefit out of the bonus out of that is uh, they get a haircut out of it. As they're sort of getting stuff off their chest, the other thing is, you know, ideally they're looking better and better too. They're looking sharper and sharper as the conversation goes on. Yeah. I'm sure that's, and I'm not even kidding you, I'm sure that's therapeutic. You know, I'm sure that's helpful to them as that's going on. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it is therapeutic. And, and the fact that they they know that they're coming to you and that they know that you're going to make them look good when they leave and feel better about themselves. I find it is therapeutic. Um, I find the, the comment that I hear the most when, when the haircut's finished is like, just what I needed. That's exactly oh, what really? I love. Oh, really? That's lovely. Say. What a nice thing to hear. Yeah. Really? So they walk out just with the standing a bit straighter and feeling feeling a bit taller as they walk out. Yeah. Uh, uh, the confidence is a, is an instant boost of confidence, yeah. Is there music in the room and a, a guy singing while all this is going on? Uh, I don't. I don't have a guy singing, but I do have music playing on the um, on the speaker. But it all depends too. If I, depending on the clientele that I have for the day, I'll look over my uh, booking list, my appointments for the day, and that will help determine what music I play. So I have some clients who like to listen to, say, older R and B. Um, then I've got some cli- um, clients who like to listen to new music, but then I have clients who are older than myself, and I love the the depth of knowledge that they have of the music they're into, say, from back in the 70s. And, and so I'll play the music, and then I'll ask them for just a conversation base as well. i ask them, like, is anyone you recommend I should listen to? And I always find that, like, it becomes a journey of experience for myself as well. Yeah, and that's another way into talking about all kinds of things, yeah. just starting a conversation with music. Yeah, that's right. Like I said at the beginning, you spent your earliest years in Tonga with your grandparents. Mm-hmm. What were they to you when you were little, Charles? My grandparents, uh, uh, to me, were like my mum and dad. In my Tongan culture, in the Tongan culture, we have this thing called pusiaki. And pusiaki basically means it's the same as an adoption. So I was adopted out to my grandparents, um, and I'm the second of seven siblings. So my grandparents took me to Tonga with them uh, after I was born. And I lived there with them until I came back to Australia just before I started uh, my schooling years. What pictures of Tonga do you have in your head? Can you remember much of that time at all? I don't remember much of that time at all, but I remember when I went back again when I was eight with my grandmother and we went to go and look look after my uh, great-grandmother there. But my grandmother told me a story of when she took me there when I was uh, uh, after birth. She was at the airport when we were changing flights and... Um, what had happened was, because um, uh, the, the flight wasn't was delayed to the next day, we had to stay in a hotel. But um, that day at the airport, someone had done a bag snatch on her, and um, she had all these food for me to, to feed me with. And so they put us in a hotel that night, and she said she just remembered that when she saw the bed at the hotel, um, when she walked in the hotel room and saw the bed, she felt like she was unworthy to sleep on the bed. So she just made, put a sheet on the floor and then uh, myself and her, we just laid there to, and had to sleep overnight on the floor and then we went on our way to Tonga after that. How religious was she? Very religious. She was very religious. I'd say um, more than religious, I'd say she was very spiritual um, because I find my grandmother was 
more about you know more about the doing than the the uh, doing what uh, I'm trying to impress other people. So she would always be the type of person that would wake up every morning reading the Bible, going to bed reading the Bible and praying. And and when I was young, I used to love uh, listening to her read. But then she would like take the time to explain some things to me um, and explain to me the like the principles of the things that she was reading. Um, and she was just uh, someone that I, I felt like was a teacher to me. And that's one thing I always valued about my, my grandmother and my grandfather was that they, they would sit me down and teach me things. And it was never done in the way where it was uh, dressed with guilt or done in a way where it was forceful. It was sit down, help me understand. And it would hit my heart all the time and I would feel, feel like what I'd done was wrong. Uh, I'd really feel it and, and it would make me feel like I didn't want to disappoint them. Obviously, she was a really good and kind person. I wonder why she thought she wasn't good enough for that bed, or is that the right word for it? In that hotel room, or was the bed, was she just distrustful of luxury? I wonder what that was. What do you think? Yeah, my, my grandmother, she came from like very humble beginnings. And so my grandmother's father, my great-grandfather, had died when she was young. And so my grandmother had to leave school when she was young to uh, help take care of her siblings because her mother now had to take over her, her father's role and start traveling to the plantation to bring the food home. And so she had to step into the mother's role and be the house, housewife to look after her younger siblings. And so my, my grandmother was always appreciative of just the simple things. And she wasn't used to luxury. So growing up, whenever... We sat down to eat, and my cousins, we sat down to eat, and my grandmother would feed us all, and we were full. If there was any food left over, my grandmother would sit there and eat everybody's leftovers. Because <laughs> 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 she, she just thought that would be a waste of food if we threw it away. It's a nice way to make a point. Rather than force the kid <laughs> to eat the plate, if she does it, then that's kind of cool, isn't it? That's clever. Yeah. So you came back to Australia to start to go to school, living with your dad. And how was your dad with you? Was he different in the way he tried to bring you up? Yeah, I think it was a challenge for my dad um, because I looked at my grandfather as my father. And I yearned to be my grandfather all the time. So uh, when I came to live with my dad, I think the difference was my dad was feeling the pressure of working to provide for uh, seven kids or, or you know, just trying to provide for a household and, and living in the Western world. And, in and a hectic city. Hectic yeah. city, yeah. yeah. And, and trying to get used to just the, the the hustle of the new life in, in the Western world. And so I felt like my father had a lot on his plate. And so I, I could see the contrast of my grandfather and my father's way of dealing with things. Um, my father didn't have the time that my grandfather had to sit down with me, discuss, and quality time. So, uh, my father was always working hard. When he came home, he was really tired. And so... Yeah, I just saw I saw a big contrast in the quality time that I had with my father. But he was a he was a a man who wanted good for us. But um, yeah, I think uh, it just um, the pressure was was a bit much for my dad. It sounds like your grandparents were really good at kind of communicating with kids in a in a kind of a loving and moral sort of way. 
Was your dad affectionate with you and your siblings? Well, my father's generation, I feel like affection was something that was meant to be just understood. Like you were meant to look at the hard work he was doing. You were meant to look at the fact that we have food in the fridge and to understand that he From loves that, us. Right. That's, he's, that's, that's got to be just understood. It's just implicit. Yeah, right. absolutely. And, and that's so, I, I never really heard the words, I love you, um, from my father. Um, was that seen as unmanly, do you think? To do that sort of a thing? Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because the word, the translation, ofa'atu in Tongan, which means I love you, we say it a lot in, in Tongan. It's actually s such a normal part of, of, our, of the way we talk. So if someone leaves your house, you say, you naturally say, I love you. Oh. Um, but, but, but saying it in English, it seems so different because it's not a natural thing you would <laughs> yeah. say. Um, so, yeah, growing up, I probably heard those words more when we were, like, being disciplined. So maybe it's more like, yeah, right. <laughs> so maybe it's more like the local culture in Australia that was more like that. Because we don't do that very often in Australia. Not Sometimes happens, but you don't tradi traditionally say, I love you as someone's walking out the door. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What did he want for you? He wanted for me and my brothers to all be professional rugby league players. Why rugby league players? What did he think that would do for you? I'm assuming he was a fan of the sport, but what did he think that would do for you? Oh, he, I think he, he thought that uh, it would be the best chance for us to succeed, uh, to earn a, a good living, and also uh, help the family out, you know, to uh, help the family out financially and just set us up on a good path. So um, I'm not too sure at what point that uh, became an idea to my father. But what I feel was when he took us down to the local football club, Elwood Saints, to start playing footy and started to see how much we uh, enjoyed playing the game and then started to um, really gravitate to, to understanding how the game works and, and that. And, and, and I guess we probably were effective at it. And my father thought, oh, this is probably a worthwhile investment. Did you enjoy it back then? Yeah, I, I think I enjoyed it a uh, I think I really did enjoy it because I think playing at that time in my life, I think playing uh, football in the team that in the club that I went to, uh, it helped me to, I guess, learn how to just meet and and start communicating with other people. You know, to get used to people outside my family circle because we have a tight family growing up. We only really stuck to ourselves, and so going to play football was my time where I got to hang around other people, I guess, or just be exposed to other people where we were doing something that we enjoyed, where, where there was a coach who was, uh, who became, you know, like invested in me as all well, that was outside of my, my family. And I really enjoyed it. I, I found it fun when I was a kid. Yeah. Who coached you when you first started? Tell me about this coach you had, because it sounds like she was a major influence on you as a, as a kid. Yeah. We had a woman coach by the name of Robin Connor. Is that unusual at the time to have a woman coach? Yeah, I think it was. Um, I mean, I didn't know, didn't really recognise it at the time because uh, she'd actually been coaching us since we were really young, under sevens, and just over the years she just remained our coach. Yeah, I honestly looked at her like like a mother. She was an Australian woman and, um, you know, I would spend a lot of time visiting and they would spend a lot of time picking me up for games and just keeping me involved and... Um, I just um, remember when they'd go away on family holidays, 
because uh, uh, they had a son that was the same age as me. My, his name was Luke. Uh, we became really good friends, so they'll take me away with them on holidays. And yeah, I really enjoyed um, just the life lessons too I'd learned from Robin. Um, I still remember a time when we were sitting there watching so another team's game, having a conversation with the boys, and Robin was invested in watching the other game, and she was just observing the, the way the other players were playing. And I we're, were just having a general conversation, and I and I swore in the conversation. <laughs> uh, and I saw Robin's attention just completely switch off the game. She turned her attention to me and she said, what did you say? And I knew straight away I must have done something wrong. <laughs> and, she's, and she basically, you know, addressed it. And she said, don't you ever use that language? And um, I respected her so much for pulling me up. And I just respected the, the fact that this, this was someone that I had a lot of respect for. And when she when she pulled me up for that, like I didn't uh, have have a problem with that. I was like, she's always been like a mother to me. So if she said this to me, she must really care about me. And so I listened to. Her. And there came the day when you were a teenager, and the word came in that your grandfather in Tonga had died. Yeah. How were you told about that? Uh, the way, well. well my grandfather, when I was growing up, I always promised my grandfather, I would tell my grandfather and my grandmother that one day when I can drive, I will buy a car and I'll take you guys driving anywhere you want to go. And I will, I will become your driver and, and, and traveling because my grandfather never drove, my grandmother never drove. So I always promised this to them when I'd get older. And I remember one day I was asking my grandfather, would you ever visit Tonga again? And he said to me, oh, I'd only go back there to, to lay to rest. That's the only time I'd go back there. So we had this conversation and that was that. Was that. And then one year came uh, during my teenage years and my grandfather's getting ready to travel to Tonga. And so we're all saying goodbye to him. And, and I remember like uh, going to say goodbye to him and he was really emotional. And I was like, Grandpa, don't. And uh, don't be uh, too worried. I'll see you again. I'll see you again. But he was really emotional. And so when he went to Tonga, he ended up passing while he was in Tonga. And when he passed, my mind went right back to that conversation we had where he said he'd only go visit again to be laid to rest. And so I was a bit like, the, the way the news came to me was, I was, uh, I was in bed. It was a summer holiday. I, was, I had my cousins over. We were in bed, just lying down, sleeping in. Uh, on the, like a normal school holiday, and uh, the news came. My grandpa had passed, and I remember getting up, and I was really, I didn't want to believe it, and so I had to go over to the house where he lived, and everyone was there, and that's where I found out that uh, that it was true, it was a reality, and and I I lashed out, you know, I was just sort of, I just sort of was in a rage because I couldn't believe that it, it actually happened. I don't think I ever prepared for this moment, for this time, and so... Um, Didn't you think it, was, it would come one day? Um, and, I mean, it's the way of the world. It's the way of things. You just weren't ready for it, though. You hadn't given it much thought. Yeah, it's true. You know, you're right. It is the way of the world. And it, for some reason, I just never thought about them going, uh, passing. I just... Uh, took it for granted I think that I had them there all the time and never thought that I never thought about the fact that there will become a time where I would have to go on without them 
I suppose it was a bit like losing a parent rather than a grandparent too, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. That's harder. I think you, it's one thing to lose a grandparent when you're a teenager, but to lose a parent. Yeah, that's how it felt to me. Uh, that's right. how it felt to me. It was the closest person in my life I'd ever lost. And so when I found, when I got the news, this was right on during the time where I was just starting to take rugby league from local level into representative level. And so my father had organised for us to attend some trials to start getting introduced into the younger grades on the NRL clubs. And so the club that we were going to trial first of all was um, the Sydney City Roosters. And so when this funeral happened around the same time, I just thought, okay, I'll be going to Tonga for this funeral. Didn't think anything else of it. So what happened was the family gathered together and a decision was made that they would send a certain number of, of the family members over for the funeral. And I automatically thought I'd be included. And then I was told that I wouldn't be going because um, my father said, I have to play the trial game for this rugby league game to, to try and make it into the, the representative club. And so I didn't have a choice in that. And that, I think, was something that really uh, ate at me. And... Um, It'd feel like a betrayal or something. Yeah, I, I just thought, like, this is an opportunity to say goodbye I, I will never have again. My opportunity to say goodbye is right now. And so um, I had to, to live with that, but um, it, it, um, it was something that harboured a lot of resentment uh, in me for that. Podcast, broadcast, and online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. You were saying before, after your grandfather died, your dad didn't want you to go to, to Tonga to go to his funeral because you were up for like some rugby league trials. What did that do to your feelings about rugby league after that, that point? It, it changed the way I viewed the game. It went from something that I, I actually enjoyed, really enjoyed playing, to becoming something that prevented me from having that opportunity to uh, say goodbye to my grandfather. So, so poisoned it. Yeah, it was poisoned then. Yeah, and and I sort of viewed that from that point on. I'm no longer playing this game for me. I'm now playing it for my father, and I just lost that personal enjoyment for the game after that. How self-destructive did you get at this time, Charles? Yeah, at this time I started drinking a lot, and I started to uh, distance myself from uh, people who were actually you know beneficial you know for me the people that were, that were actually like Robin Connor my grandmother I started to distance myself because a lot of my um, my cousins I didn't feel like I could actually talk to them about this because they viewed him as a grandfather and they viewed their father as a father 
but I viewed my grandfather as my father. And so for a lot of my cousins and that, even though they knew how close our relationship was, you know, I felt like they they couldn't really understand where I was coming from. So I kept it to myself and I started acting out and a lot of the habits that I picked up. So a lot of drinking and then uh, slowly uh, a lot of the, just the recreational drugs that came with it and um, just a lot of rebelling uh, against my parents. Did that lead to petty crime for a while? Yeah, so eventually I ended up hanging around a, a circle of friends that I would catch up with, with and we started um, getting involved in petty crime and just to make money to support our habit for drinking and this will be a weekly thing I'd be doing and it just ended up uh, eventuating to the point where we got in trouble with the law, with the police and then uh, when the pressure from the police kept uh, mounting up and I kept getting in trouble with the police, then my father felt that... Um, he couldn't control it anymore and ended up sending me away overseas to New Zealand to live with family. How did things change once you got to New Zealand? Well, it was, it was a bit tough because before I boarded the plane, my father said to me, when you get to New Zealand and people ask you whose son you are, you make sure you don't mention me and your mother's name. Um, and so I, I boarded the plane with those last words from my father. Oh, that, was that hurtful? That must have been so hurtful. Very. It was very hurtful. But I boarded the plane and I thought, I'm just happy to get out of Australia right now. So I got to New Zealand, living with family, and then the, the change of atmosphere. I didn't know hardly anybody except for my cousins that I was living with. It was refreshing for me. So I started getting, just joining uh, the local community, volleyball games up the road. So I turn up every afternoon, not hardly knowing anyone, playing volleyball. You got all these big island men jumping up and spiking the ball at little kids, you know. <laughs> so I was, I was learning. I had to, I had to, I felt like it was a, a, a training. I had, to, I had to learn to be confident to be able to, to attend this, these, uh, these uh, volleyball games every week. Eventually got to know the guys, then felt like a little brother to these guys. And I really enjoyed the experience. And, but through that experience, it made me want to sort of develop more of a spiritual uh, side. And that's where it all started in New Zealand for me. Right. What kind of spiritualism are we talking about here? So I actually wanted to get back to what my grandma used to do and read in the Bible. Go to church? Yeah. I started going to church and uh, I started uh, just visiting and trying to rebuild my relationship with God. And I just wanted to go back to what, a lot of what my grandmother said. And I remember one of the most popular accounts that my mom, my grandma was, used to read to me was about a, a young person who was lost in the woods and God called him back. And I thought to myself, I'm that young person at that time. I need to be called back. So I ventured out on my journey then. And uh, I was in New Zealand for a little time. I started working in the strawberry farms, which was beautiful for me because it was all other Tongan workers there. And when lunchtime came, everybody brought the pots out, the lunch boxes out, everyone brought it out. We all sat under a tree and everyone was passing the food around. And I'd never seen that before. I thought, wow, this is, this is a whole different experience. And so we'd sit there and eat together. I never really knew anyone until I got to that, to that job. And it was just, I felt it was fulfilling for me at that time in my life because I was going through you know, a time where I was a bit haywire and it grounded me again back to the roots that my grandma taught me about. That sounds so nice. Why did you leave? What brought you back to Australia? Well, what brought me back to Australia was I went for a holiday in Tonga 
and my father and my uh, my siblings and my mother went to Tonga as well. We all agreed to meet there for holidays, and then, without my knowledge, they arranged for me to have a ticket to come back to Australia. Um, so I came back to Australia because there was a opportunity to return to uh, representative football again. So I came back to Australia to play football. And how did that go? How did you go once you were back in, in Sydney again? Well, when I got back, you know, even though it, was, it wasn't something that I agreed upon, I tried to just try to do do my best with the circumstances. And I I've discovered really quickly that there were a lot of unresolved issues. We'd never, ever spoke, never had a dialogue conversation about what had happened. It was just expected that I was supposed to slot back in and just go. And so I felt like all of those unresolved issues just came up. They, they, I couldn't keep them down. And so because of that, my father uh, and my mother and I agreed that I should leave home because uh, my father was worried that my example uh, might rub off on my siblings. So I left home. And, uh, oh, there's heavy shame in all of that, isn't there? Yeah. yeah and and you, your self-respect must have, must not have been great. How old were you when, when you left home? 17, 18, 17 oh. going on 18, yeah. And what happened once you were out of home? So when I went home, I uh, went, out of, went out of home. I was living in a, in a boarding house. And um, at the time, I, was, I felt like I had freedom. And uh, I learned very, very quickly um, some things about life that I didn't know. Uh, now you've got to start paying your own rent. Mm. Now you've got to start buying your own food. You've got to wash your own clothes. And I was with a fortunate at the time I was in a relationship where uh, a young girl was helping me out. And so yeah, I settled in, in Redfern at the time. And then things went bad again. Yeah, things went bad again. Uh, my relationship with that girl ended up falling apart. We had a child and... We actually got married in that short time, and by the age of, let's say, 21, I was divorced, and and I really felt depressed from that. But at that time, not knowing I was depressed, I just went right back to the drinking, and it, that sort of had me caught up in that habit for a, for a while. It's so interesting you were able to talk about what you were feeling back then. Like mm-hmm. You've really got all the language for it now, but maybe you didn't have the language for what you were feeling back then. Yeah, I, I sure, surely didn't at the time. Uh, and at the time, um, it was something that I was just dealing with internally. I wasn't vocalizing it or speaking to anyone about it. And everybody around me was like, drink it away. Don't worry about it. You know, let's, just, let's, let's just go out and have fun. But same thing, I just had more pented up unresolved issues inside that I hadn't dealt with and no one to talk to. And so I, yeah, I just got back into the habit again. And um, it, that sort of held me down for a, for a long time. And the saddest thing for me was I still regard that as probably the biggest, probably the most regretful experience of my life. And the reason being was I think about my son and I, f- and I think about how uh, he had to endure a, an experience or some circumstances, my older son, that uh, he had no nothing to do with. And that's that's something that I felt, you know, uh, always made that probably the most uh, regretful experience for me. So you were sent to periodic detention at one point. What did that mean? How does that normally work with periodic detention? Yeah, so periodic detention, uh, they, you usually have to turn up 
at five o'clock at a point. They meet you, pick you up, then you get locked up until Sunday, and then you come out. It's like a last straw before you go into full-time lockup. And so I had to do that for nine months. Right, to give you a taste of prison, so you go, well, I'm... I'm not going to go there again. That's the idea? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think the only reason why I had that as an option was because I had children and I had the, that I was responsible for providing for. So they were trying to give me a last chance. And so I did that for nine months. And and while, while I was in there, I really started thinking about my spirituality again because I, I had stopped it. And I thought I really need to get in touch with this with my spirituality. But Was that a product of loneliness too? You think? Yeah, I think uh, I think I realised that when um, I was disconnected with mm. that, with, with having, um, with, with staying in touch with reading things that were keeping me positive, um, giving me good direction and guidance, I found that I I uh, would always turn back and go down the wrong path. So I tried that, but um, in there I found it really tough because of the the atmosphere. Yeah, were well, your fellow inmates unhelpful or or helpful or a bit of both? Oh, it's it's more like um, you're surrounded by in a atmosphere where everyone's trying to protect their manhood, you know. And for me, I were, like I never really bought into it, never really uh, got sucked into that because I always felt like uh, I felt when I was in there, I always felt like these aren't bad people; these are just people who made bad decisions. Because I'd have one-on-one conversations with guys, and then I'd see how they were in the yard in front of everybody else. And I recognize that there's a big front going on for a lot of people. So that's how I viewed things. And I thought, I'll try and uh, rebuild myself. But I, I just struggled because you don't really have that kind of support sometimes in there unless you've got more than yourself, uh, someone motivating you. And that came during my time I was doing that sentence. A guy came in and it turned out that he knew someone uh, else that was a mutual friend between us and so was he, he a fellow prisoner or someone else or a youth worker or something so he was a fellow prisoner wow. he was a fellow prisoner so he came in and he said that um he said that uh, i heard that you were um studying the bible with a friend of mine i said yeah i was and he said yes yeah, so was i i was studying too but um he said um i was about to get baptized and i said how are you supposed to get baptized and you're here in jail with me and then he said well before I, I decided to get baptized, I realized I had some warrants on my name and I felt that it wouldn't be right for me to go ahead unless I go and clear my name. And so he turned himself into the police station and he ended up inside with me. And so he helped me uh, rebuild my spiritual journey up. And he's another big formidable type of guy too. So when we both realized we were on the same journey, we were in different pods. So we decided, why don't we approach the security guard in the jail, and ask him, could you let us share the same cell? And he he looked at us and he said, you're joking, right? And we're like, why? And he said, why would I put two big guys together in the same pod? <laughs> so he said, you guys were probably just trying to get together to try and take over or, or run amok in, in your pod. And we were like, no. He thought the two of you were going to essentially become the co-kingpins of the prison. Is he that thought, what he thought? Or, or right. just, just of that pod. You know? <laughs> and and I, I like what Jack said to him. Jack said to him, if you allow us to sell up together, the only thing we want to do is share things with the prisoners, the other inmates that will actually make your job easier. And to my surprise, the, the guard there let us sell up together. And so 
while I was there, Jack was sharing a lot of things to me. But it wasn't until this one other inmate said to Jack, Jack, I love what I'm learning and I'm love, I love these things that you're sharing. But, you know, my wife's not going to have me accept me doing this stuff. You know, and and I was just there relaxing, laying down, just just, you know, just daydreaming. And Jack turns around and says to him, well, you can learn as much as you want of this stuff and take in as much knowledge as you want. But if you're not willing to do any of it, then it's all, it all means nothing. And I, I sat there thinking to myself, wow, all these years I've been acquiring knowledge and I've ha I haven't put it to use. And, and so when I finished my, my sentence then, uh, I ended up really committing to my spiritual journey and it became a life-changing experience for me. Do you think you learned that lesson in an even broader sense? Like, you know, you've been acquiring all this knowledge, practical knowledge, apart from spiritual knowledge, but mm. more worldly knowledge about how to go about things in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I learned that anything in life, if you have good ideas and you don't put it into action, then they just remain good ideas and means nothing to anybody. <laughs> Having good ideas, you've got to actually materialize it. And it helped me in, in all areas of my life, even with my wife, when I'm dealing with my children. Um, I might have good intentions for my kids, but if it comes out in a way that's just interpreted to my child as anger and fear, then I find like those good ideas don't mean anything until they're interpreted and translated across in the same way. So once you got out of periodic detention, what did you do? Once I got out of the periodic detention, I, I just focused on, on my family. We ended up moving out of the area. We were living um, with family. And we decided for the first time in me and uh, the mother of my kids' experience, it was the first time ever we decided we're going to up, move into an area we've never lived in before, away from everybody else, and we're going to start our own journey. And so we moved to Blacktown and for the first time moved away from everyone. And we started our own journey and we're just trying to focus on family, trying to focus on working, trying to focus on, you know, just the simple things, uh, family routine at home, trying to focus on helping the kids with their school, you know, trying to just, just focus on simple things. And um, it was a huge uh, game changer for us. How long did it take you to realise you might be a barber? Uh, well, like, like for money, I mean, rather than just cutting family, cutting the hair of members of the family. Yeah, well, I, I started cutting hair, I think, in 1992. And oh, when you were a kid? So I was, I was about 12, 13 <laughs> years old. I started cutting hair because my cousins used to cut hair at the back of my grandma's house. And so I used to love sitting there and uh, watching them cut hair. And because they had migrated from Tonga to Australia... They were doing, they were still living like they were in Tonga. Yeah. So they were cutting each other's hair in the backyard. Where my father was like, no, 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 go get your haircut from the barbershop. You know, so we'd go to the barbershop, but I'd go to my grandma's house to watch them cut hair, and I was more fascinated with that. <laughs> and so um, I, I ended up picking up the clippers. They ended up letting me start to cut hair, and I, I, I got the, the love for, for cutting hair then. But it wasn't until, so I'd been cutting hair ever since I was high school. Through my journey, everywhere I went, I was always cutting hair, cutting friends' hair, cutting family's hair. When I started working, I was cutting hair after work. I'd come home and just cut hair for everyone and anyone that I knew after work. Absolutely loved it. But then in 2014, I was doing the same thing. I come home from work, cutting uh, a friend's hair, 
And he said to me, you know, I'd pay you to do this, eh? And I said, oh, that's that's nice, thanks, bro. You know, but I enjoy this, just just doing it for fun. Again, you have the knowledge, but not the action here. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and he said something yeah. to me that would that you know that really changed my mind. He said to me, he said, you know, it's it's actually scriptural for me to pay you for your services. It's the right thing to do. He said because you're a, you're a man that's a father, and you're looking after a family. And while you're out here cutting my hair, I'm taking time away from your family, and I'm also it's also costing you electricity. And it's only right that a man should compensate another man for his services and his hard work. That was the plant. That was the idea that started it. And I was like, really. And then I had another friend who came for a haircut and he comes with this little box that looked like a tissue box. And it was an empty little box. And he said to me, this is from my wife. And she said, you have to start charging now for haircuts. And she won't allow me to come back here for haircuts if you don't charge me anymore, if you don't charge me. So I started off with $5 haircuts and just eventually just kept growing and as my as my clientele base kept growing, I started uh, slowly just decreasing my time for my day job and ended up uh, doing barbering full-time from home. Did it let you reclaim the idea that you once had with rugby league before the bad times, that you might actually enjoy what you do? Oh, I absolutely love what I do, and, yeah, and you're right. Uh, I think the thing that made me really go deep into thought was, I thought, how how did it take me this many years to not see an opportunity in something that I love so much that was sitting right under my nose. George Orwell says the hardest thing in the world to identify is the thing that's right in front of our nose most <laughs> of the time, <laughs> or, or the hair on our head, maybe in this case. Absolutely. In, indeed. So in 2016, you ran a 10-week course for five young Islander guys, mm-hmm. mentoring them in the art of barbering. Tell me about the original five, as they call themselves. It's kind of a thing, isn't it? The original five. Yeah, the original five were a group of uh, young guys um, from out Western Sydney. And um, they came and joined the first barber program that I was um, invited to to host from home, from our setup at home. And um, yeah, we took him through six months of training. Uh, every every Thursday night, we take him through uh, teaching them about the origins of barbering, uh, teaching them about the history of the trade, um, and then also talking to them, teaching them about customer service, um, and then into the actual craft of barbering. And then after that six months that we took him through that training, we ended up uh, hosting an exhibition at the local art centre in Blacktown. And so these young guys had the opportunity to start cutting hair for people in the in the community who, who came to sit in the chairs over... Uh, a period of time, I think it was like a couple of weeks or a month that we had that uh, exhibition going. So they were now able to take everything that they learned in that six months and now put it into practice with people they'd never met before. Um, So uh, out of that original five, one guy in particular, he was the one that probably was unsure of why he was there in the start. Uh, When we had the, when we interviewed the, the original five, I remember he, this guy named Kiko, he said to me, I asked him, what, what brought you to this program today? And he said, I only just tagged along with my other friend because he said that he was coming here and he said, why don't I just come along? So he came along and he actually turned out to be the guy that went on to manage barber shops and he's still working as a professional barber today. I saw a, I saw a story on the feed on SBS that Pat Abood did 
with you mm. and those guys. And I heard them talk. They're lovely men. And what's interesting hearing them talk is, again, they have that kind of, they have a lot of good language, emotional language. Mm. They can talk in a way that not a lot of young guys really can about how they think and they feel. Is that just like a kind of a fun, well, not a fun, but an interesting byproduct? Or is this something you really want them to have? Like, this is what you have. Is this what you want them to have or want them to learn from you? Yeah, I think um, barbering is is a, a platform that allows that um, for us to be able to share that with young people. And I feel it's something that's really, really important because going back when we talk about all those times when I never had an opportunity to talk about these unresolved issues and this pent-up resentment, I felt like the way I expressed myself was opposite to, was was really reflecting the way I was feeling. So with these young guys, I really wanted to give them the opportunity to learn how to communicate uh, openly with other people, with all different walks of life. Because I felt like coming out of school, you spend from the age of five to year 12, you're used to just spending most of your time around your peers. But once you leave year 12, the, in the big world out there, you've got to learn how to talk to all different uh, people. And communication is is key in the barbershop. Sometimes I feel like uh, communication is so key that if you're great at your customer service and great at treating people and great at, at, at uh, communicating with people, that you still be able to survive in this industry um, even if your haircuts are shocking. Uh, people, I think people... Uh, remember more how they feel um, at the end of the day. So if you know how to treat people in a way where you make them feel important um, and your haircuts can be average, uh, you still be able to make a, an honest living. It seems like you've become the man that your grandparents really wanted you to be. You've got a lot of their best qualities. Is that what you want to be? Is that what you're, you've been aiming towards? Yeah, very much. As a father, um, the way I father, I, 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 a lot of times I reflect back on the the feeling that I received, the way I felt from the way that my grandmother and grandfather trained me. So with my own children, as they get older, I, I notice every single part of their journey requires a different type of father. So when my uh, my older children got into, went into teenagehood, some of the things that I thought I had a hold on, uh, you know, taught me that, I, okay, I need to adapt here. And so one thing I keep in mind all the time is uh, asking myself is, how did I feel when I was at that age? And what do I wish was said differently to me that would have allowed me to respond differently? And so a lot of those times I, I, I tune back into how my grandfather and my grandmother um, conveyed a message to me. It's been really lovely speaking with you, Charles. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rich, for having me. Charles Lomo is a barber and the founder of the Garage Barbershop Project. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.